Hello Creative Health community, welcome back to your regular fix of arts and health stories. Before we hear this conversation, I want to let you know that I have recently joined Patreon. If you can, I would so appreciate it if you would consider supporting the making of this podcast so that I can continue to share these important stories about creative health. You can find the link to my Patreon page on my website, show notes and socials. Thank you. My guest today is Christopher Bailey, no relation to me though. Christopher is the Arts and Health Lead at the World Health Organization and a co-founder of the Jamil Arts and Health Lab. Educated at Columbia and Oxford Universities, as well as the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, after a career as a professional actor and playwright, Christopher worked at the Rockefeller Foundation before joining the WHO. He's also performed in original pieces such as Stage 4 Cancer and the Imagination and The Vanishing Point, A Journey into Blindness and Perception. He's a wonderful advocate for arts and health on a global scale, super personable and generous with his knowledge. Enjoy. Hello, Christopher. Welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Hello. I'm really glad to have you here. I think that your role and your experience is going to be of real interest to my listeners. You have a big role, Christopher, with a very big global view on arts and health, but I'd be really grateful if at first you could tell us a bit about your career journey that led to your current role. (laughs) Well, it was quite a circuitous journey. I think If you were to ask my earlier selves at any spot on the journey what I would be doing in late middle age, I don't think any of them would have guessed that I would be arts and health lead at the World Health Organization. That was a unexpected outcome. But I'm also a big believer in what Nietzsche called amor fate. It's this idea of falling in love with your fate as a key to human happiness. If At a certain point in your life, no matter what the original plan was, if you can look back and say, oh my God, every single choice I made led inevitably to this moment, and this moment is good, that's actually a key to human happiness. I love that. So tell us about some of those decisions that led you here then. Where were you? What were you doing? Well, I think the first decision was... I think like many people, I did a lot of junior high and high school dramatics. I was very much into the theater and partly because I was painfully shy. And I found that when you were on stage, you could talk to people, especially girls when I was, (laughs) you know, pre-adolescent. And you didn't have to think of what to say. Someone already wrote it for you. And I thought, how cool was that? And you didn't have to worry about showing emotions. You could show any emotion and it was fine. It got a positive reaction. So without realizing it, it was serving a kind of therapeutic value to me. But at the time, I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, oh, what a relief. In this world, I can actually fully express myself and connect to people in a way that seems so awkward and painful in normal life. And I think even today, most people consider me a fairly extroverted person, but I'm one of those introverted extroverts where through theater, through the arts, I've learned to express myself, but deep down inside, I have all the qualities of an introvert. I've just learned to function. And that's one of the values, I think, of 
being involved in the various forms of creative expression. From high school, I got accepted to Columbia University in New York. And part of the reason why I chose it was because it was in New York and it was the center of theater. And I just was extremely attracted to being in that milieu. But I also suffered from intense imposter syndrome. So I didn't audition for any plays. I was so worried that I was going to fail academically that I just hit the books. And the end result On the one hand, I didn't really take advantage of being in New York, but I did get good enough grades to get approved into a program where I was able to go to Oxford in England. And while I was there, I studied theater, I studied romanticism, I studied that wonderful moment in time in the early 19th century where the relationship between science and art was something that poets and philosophers and writers and scientists were all thinking about. And I started getting involved in theater there. And when I eventually left, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, became a professional actor for a number of years. And then at a certain point, started having children and began to realize that I had to feed and clothe them. And uh, the end result was I started looking for jobs. I ended up at the Rockefeller Foundation. I was their research manager, got involved in uh, global philanthropy and development. And then from the Rockefeller Foundation, I was recruited to WHO to head up the knowledge management program. And after starting the health informatics group at WHO, looking at ways of using electronic medical record systems in rural HIV clinics in Africa to improve patient outcomes and facility management, I found that by using some of the theater techniques that I had learned, particularly Augusta Boal and Theater of the Oppressed, it became more than just WHO technical experts coming to a rural village and telling people the evidence-based solutions that would improve their work and their lives. It was collaborating on the narrative of the solution together as a kind of joint creative act. And seeing the power of that really influenced me. So when um, Dr. Tedros came on board as director general and he put out this famous call to staff for uh, crazy ideas, I came to him and I said, here's my crazy idea. How about doing an arts and health program? And I was in a salon. I had 15 minutes to make my pitch, and it was pretty simple. We know that evidence, data, information are essential for better decision-making, problem-solving, for saving lives. But we also know from the evidence that data, evidence, and information by themselves are often insufficient to change people's deeply held convictions and behaviors. For that, you need empathy, often in the form of a story. And He agreed, and that was the beginning. That's amazing. So you're already inside the WHO, let's say. Yeah. And then did you know anything about any other work that was going on around arts and health? Because obviously, like you said, you need to have evidence. Yeah. So did you have the evidence to say, this is a genuine thing, it's happening elsewhere, we should be doing this? Only tangentially and through practice. So 
in my work in HIV clinics in Africa, we did role play. We did a lot of these techniques. I didn't make it my business to see what other people were doing. I was just on a day-to-day basis sort of trying to see what worked in my situation. But after Tedros approved this exploratory phase of the program to see if it had legs, the first thing I did was I got a little bit of funding from the Wellcome Trust, and we did a scoping review. And we looked systematically at the evidence, at what was going on in the world, who was doing what in the UN system and beyond. And that's when I became aware of the deep history and richness of this field, which I think most people aren't aware. And in fact, one of the interesting things is when I put out my shingle of arts and health lead at WHO and word got around that this was happening at WHO, people from around the world started coming to me and saying, oh my God, I thought we were alone. I thought we were the only ones doing this. And so my feelings of, oh, this is interesting, but no one else is doing it, is shared by thousands of people around the world. And so I think half of the advantage of WHO putting that shingle out is to let people become aware of each other and have this organic network begin to form. And lots of wonderful alchemic positive things can come from that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you're not the first person to have said that to me, that they thought they were the only ones interested in this or working on it. So it is great to be building a global network around it. Oh, yeah. And when we find each other, it's like, you know, the secret sharer. You find these blood brothers and sisters, and you immediately have this bond. Mm. And most profoundly, there is a guy named Kunli Adewale, who was from Nigeria, but currently works out of Manchester, who's built up this Global South Arts and Health Network. And we had a convening in Cairo last November, where we had dozens of practitioners, researchers from very underserved populations around the world come and share their practice, share their stories. It was a magical convening and particularly interesting for the people from the global north that were there because there's always this assumption that the knowledge is in the north and should be transferred to the south. But in this particular field, often the reverse is true. The knowledge is in the south and it's the north that forgot and is now rediscovering it. That's interesting. We're going to pick up on some of that a bit later on. Just before we get into more detail, just in case anyone isn't aware, just tell us what the World Health Organization exists for, what its purpose and mission is as a whole. Oh, well, that's easy. I would go back to our 1947 constitution, which had a very progressive definition of health. And Quite simply, it defined health as not merely the absence of disease and infirmity, but the attainment of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. And I think that's a good place to start because from that point in 1947, they had a vision of this asset-based approach to health, of being a complete person, not just being free from a disease or a condition. And I think when you look at health from that perspective, then the health benefits of the arts become intuitively obvious. But in general, WHO has offices in almost every member state in the world. We um, 
focus primarily on the normative work, guidelines, synthesizing research, establishing best practice. We do a lot of work in the field, but often it's in collaboration with other agencies whose mission is more field-oriented. For our work, we focus on three areas. One is the normative work of looking at the evidence base for the health benefits of the arts and seeing if we can build up robust trials of what is most effective practice of scaling these effective practices to reach the most underserved populations, as well as looking at the foundational science behind it, the neuroscience, the biochemistry of why we might reasonably say this has a health benefit and what is the mechanism behind it, what's actually happening that where we we say this improves well-being. So there's that category. And then the second category is being involved strategically in certain on-the-ground implementations, particularly in underserved communities. I've always liked to do that, even in the informatics work that I did many years ago. It keeps you honest. If you're only at the normative level, you sometimes get disconnected to the reality on the ground. And if you're only in the reality on the ground, you miss the connections. And so to be able to toggle back and forth Mm. between high and low normative and implementation is very useful, I think. And then the third is working with the global media. And that could be everything from working with Lady Gaga on curating the Together at Home concert at the beginning of the pandemic, which WHO did, to our collaboration with the Metropolitan Museum of Art for a three-day arts and health symposium, to working with Netflix and HBO Max and other groups on films that had a health content to them, and beyond. One of our goodwill ambassadors right now is Renee Fleming, the soprano. And whenever she concertizes around the world, often she will do a public discussion called Music in the Mind, where she identifies local neurologists and practitioners. I often join her and we discuss what is the science behind the healing power of music and what is the local practice and try and spur these conversations. And often it leads to really interesting follow-up conversations and further projects and engagements. So you mentioned a few bits and pieces that you've been doing, but tell us sort of on a day-to-day basis what your job entails. On a day-to-day basis, really what I do still falls into those three categories. I interact with research centers around the world, identifying interesting studies or supporting the studies that we've initiated with my colleagues at the Jameel Arts and Health Lab, which I co-founded with NYU and an NGO called Culture Runners. And it's not just WHOHQ. I have a really strong partner named uh, Nils Fitya in our Copenhagen office, which is the headquarters of the European region. And we're identifying partners in all the regional offices to make this a global team. But I, I would say that for me personally, probably I spend the most time in kind of a ambassadorial role 
like last week when I was in Washington, D.C., at a White House consultation on culture and community. There was a section on the health benefits of the arts. It was hosted by the National Endowment for the Arts, and I performed there. I say performed quite deliberately because what I try to do in these public engagements is to walk the talk of science and art, where I find ways of presenting the scientific information using artistic techniques of of song, of jokes, of story, so that I'm not only describing what happens in the deep aesthetic engagement, but I'm also creating that engagement itself. Mm -hmm. So you not only understand it, you feel it. And I mean, as an example, I remember when I first gave my presentation to the Wellcome Trust after we went through that scoping exercise, I began by saying, over the next hour, I will not only remind you of Aristotle's definition of catharsis, I will not only describe some of the emerging neurology of what we think is happening in the midbrain at the moment of catharsis, but by the end of the hour, I'm going to bring all of you to catharsis. And everyone laughs But I actually quite deliberately planted a seed so that when we got to the climax, it was amplified because of that called shot. Mm. And it's a trick that artists use all the time. I actually got it from Dave Chappelle watching one of his uh, Netflix specials where he would tell a joke that wasn't particularly funny in the first five minutes. And then after the hour of the stand-up routine, he would come back to that joke. And because of the journey, the joke was hilarious. Yeah. It's very (laughs) clever, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it like nudge sort of theory, you know, where you just like planting these little seeds and, but people don't realize that that's happening? Well, they don't realize that it's happening. It's again, a little bit like what Nietzsche was describing with Amor Fate. In his case, he was, how do you curate your life so that you have a cathartic satisfaction over your own narrative. What an artist does is, I mean, Chekhov once famously said, never introduce a gun in the first scene of a play unless you intend for it to go off in the last scene. And all these things that that are carefully placed by the artist throughout the narrative or throughout the piece must come to some kind of resolution. Aristotle's definition of catharsis was that moment of shock and awe. And, you know, what is shock and awe? It's being surprised by something, but also recognizing the pattern that led up to it, the inevitability, all at the same time. And so something being a surprise and inevitable is a contradiction, And what happens when the brain, you you create this moment of cognitive dissonance where you have this contradiction, it creates this vacuum. And nature abhorring a vacuum will lay down a new neural pathway and will reward that learning moment with a shot of oxytocin. And that's that feeling of awe. And oxytocin is that hormone that supports feelings of bonding and community. So there's that moment in the climax where suddenly you feel a connection, not only with the performers, but everyone in the audience. And there is this sense of community within that magic circle for that hour. Mm. How long it lasts, I don't know. 
but uh, it's a real effect. Well, I did hear somewhere that, and I don't know how scientifically proven it is, but that the effects of these things actually last for much longer. So, for example, if you go to the theatre and you really enjoy a performance, the sort of positive effects on that on you last a lot longer, potentially, than going for a run and doing physical activity, that it actually has a greater legacy, for want of a better word. I don't know how proven that is. Well, I've seen a few studies that have shown some of the specific measurable effects do last for several weeks. I certainly am not going to argue that going to the theater is more healthy than jogging. (laughs) I think one should probably do both. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I know as an actor, sometimes it feels like you've been jogging when you've done a three-hour play. But sometimes the most profound benefits are not easily measured, particularly when it comes to changing your perspective and worldview. The use of awe is now regularly and deliberately applied through social prescribing programs around the world often for people who have suffered or are managing symptoms of things like post-traumatic trauma, transgenerational trauma. I saw examples in Ireland, for instance, of people in a mediated way being brought to beautiful landscapes, which, of course, Ireland has them in legion. And that effect of being exposed to something intensely beautiful that is larger than yourself, ironically, instead of it making you feel diminished, it has the opposite effect where in that feeling of awe, because of that oxytocin bonding that happens in this case with the landscape around you, you feel, yes, small, but you feel as if you are an essential and integral part of a larger whole. And that, particularly with the dissociation that comes from a traumatic experience, that reconnection that awe can give you can literally be a lifesaver. It it can help you find a path forward when none seemed apparent before. Mm, It's so powerful, isn't it? You're obviously really interested in the kind of science of art's effect on the brain. Yeah. And is that what the focus of the Jamil Arts and Health Lab is? It's part of the focus. As I mentioned earlier, part of the study is to identify effective practice and then through robust studies, how can we extend that benefit to the most number of people, particularly in underserved populations. But to do that effectively, I believe you also have to look at the underlying science. You have to understand the mechanism, not just know that it works. And that's, I think, the difference between what we're doing and, let's say, more traditional health promotional ideas where you say, oh, yes, well, let's measure whether or not people have understood and applied the health messaging of this artistic performance. That's important. Yeah. I'm not diminishing that at all, but it's not the universe of benefits of the deep aesthetic experience. And so to make the case that this is more than just health messaging, that there's a health benefit regardless of what the message may or may not be, to make that effectively, I think we have to do more than just show lower cortisol levels or briefer hospital stays, all of which are interesting and important measures. But 
to understand why that works. Why is it shorter? What happens in terms of the mind-body connection when music is applied to physical therapy and it shortens that hospital stay? Yeah. Why is that happening? Would you say that the majority of the research into the brain science side of it, for want of a better phrase, is coming out of the US? No. uh, Where is the work being led in that area? Well, uh, I mean, there are a couple of interesting initiatives in the US. Uh, One of my favorites is the NeuroArts Blueprint that uh, Susan Meg Salmon is running in Johns Hopkins, and we work very closely with them. And that's has a very strong neuroaesthetic base, starting from how do we understand how our nervous system works, not just the brain, because oftentimes some of the more profound activity is happening throughout the body, not only the brain. And that gets very interesting too, just the effects that are housed in the nerves themselves, in the muscles, in the skin, and all the different ways that we try and make sense of the world. It's more than just the brain. Mm. There's also a lot of work happening at uh, UCL. Uh, Daisy Fancourt there was the lead author of our 2019 report, which basically changed the field of uh, how people think about uh, arts and health. And what's interesting about that report to me is that it's not like a lot of the information was new. I think what was new about it was the way it was compiled and that WHO put it out. So people began to think about the evidence in a different way. A lot of the evidence is about the impact of arts on what we call non-communicable diseases. So things that can't be caught and spread from one person to another. Tell us more about that. Well, and and even the effect on communicable diseases is looking at it from an NCD point of view, non-communicable diseases. Uh, What it boils down to is I actually, as the WHO Arts and Health lead, I am not an uncritical cheerleader of this movement. Part of my role is to actually assess whether there's a there there, right? Mm. And I personally become skeptical when claims of the health benefits of the arts become overly medicalized. And if somebody says, oh, this particular piece of music will cure you of this condition, I am open to that. But I want to see the sample size. I want to see the rigor there. And more often than not, it's pretty inconclusive. I'll give a concrete example. The use of um, music and other art forms in the management of uh, dementia. There are many claims out there that it can actually prevent or slow the progress or cure, in some cases, dementia. If you really look at the evidence, I don't see it. My father-in-law was a pianist, and he suffered from dementia. And when it was in its advanced stages, he forgot that he was a pianist. He forgot what a piano was. But when we placed him on the piano bench in front of the keyboard and placed his hands on the keys, his muscles remembered, and he began to play. And what was notable about it was that before he was playing, the normal state of his face was contorted and anxious and confused and tortured, like 
the feeling you get when you've just woken up from a dream and you're not quite conscious where you don't quite know where you've been or what was happening and you don't quite know where you are or what's going to happen. And this was constant. And yet while he played his Chopin on the piano, suddenly his face relaxed. He recognized people. He remembered the piece. And there was this glimpse of the person that we thought we had lost. And not only was that an act of grace for him, but it was for us as the caregivers to be able to see and connect to this person again. And then, of course, once he stopped playing, the effects disappeared. And I believe one of the reasons why that effect happened is because music itself is an all brain event. If you look at a person's brain when they are either listening or playing music. It's not a single center of the brain that gets activated. The brain lights up like a Christmas tree. So if you have parts of the brain that are damaged, as is what happens with Alzheimer's, for the moment that you're in the deep aesthetic experience, the brain will find detours and actually tap parts of the brain that you thought you didn't have access to anymore. But it's a temporary change. So that's why I often say the arts don't cure, the arts heal, because it's a very different thing. Yeah. The arts help you become whole again, but it doesn't necessarily make the condition magically go away. It's still there. No, I don't think any of us who work in the sector are ever, you know, claiming that arts can cure cancer or cure dementia or anything like that. But as we know, as we've been talking about, there's lots of evidence to show that actually it can prevent a lot of ill health and support well-being and mental health and a whole host of health conditions. And that's why a lot of the conversation is around arts as a sort of preventative tool to help you to live a long life in good health. Yeah, I think that aspect of it gets really interesting, especially when you look at the typical pathway of aging in our society today, where people's minds and bodies atrophy from lack of use. And they come to a point because they're propped up medically and living longer, but their bodies have weakened, their minds have weakened, so they can't take care of themselves and they become institutionalized, which becomes very expensive, a burden to society, and not particularly a thriving way of life in your last chapter. So if you can be educated and put into practice eating better, more healthily, having moderate exercise, not giving up and just sitting in your chair, but still walking, still moving if you can, and engaging your mind in some kind of form of creative expression, Yes, evidence shows that you can be part of the family, part of the community for much, much longer than is often the case. But even this notion of prevention, I always like to look at it very carefully because there's some interesting studies to show that the arts can lower the risk of things. But as any statistics in public health will show you, it may be true for a population, but it's not universally true for each individual. And that's something I think to keep in mind. If engagement in the arts or music lowers the prevalence of dementia 
hypothetically in a population group. Well, my father-in-law played piano his whole life and he got severe dementia and that's how he died. So it wasn't true for him. Yeah, exactly. And also just on a sort of preference basis, the arts creativity isn't going to be for everybody. And so what we're not saying is that it's going to work brilliantly for everybody. It's more about that it needs to be taken seriously as an option for people amongst a whole suite of other things that can also help you have a good quality of life. And all of it work in synergy, depending on your tastes and worldview. That's often why I like to use the term creative expression, because it doesn't tie itself to any particular formal artistic genre. There are many ways to express yourself creatively. If someone were to ask me what is the form of creative expression that I practice most regularly with all my soul, I would say cooking. To me, that's an art. Absolutely. If you were to ask my son, he would say baseball. You know, it's an art. It's, it's true for anything that you become passionate about. So we're not elitist when we talk about the arts. We're not saying, oh, you have to listen to Mozart in order to improve your brain functions. I think Mozart is a perfectly wonderful thing to listen to, but that's not really what it's about. It's about your personal engagement with the world through the senses and through your sense-making abilities and imagination, however that manifests itself. Yeah, it's so true. That's a really lovely way of putting it. So I want to just move us back to some of the work that you're involved with. And I know that you're doing some work in Scotland and in Ireland. I've been involved in this work in the UK for the last sort of 10, 15 years. And we've talked previously about the sort of influence that the work in the UK has had globally, but maybe that's shifting a little bit and actually other parts of the world are leading the way in a lot of spaces. So tell us your thoughts on that. Well, you know, when I was at Oxford, as an American, it was funny to hear people regularly make the observation that in England, we invented so many things, but the Americans then mass produced it and perfected it and made money off of it. I don't know how true that is. But in a way, arts and health followed a similar path where the UK was quite innovative, particularly at the government and policy level and establishing social prescribing and the link workers in the health system and a system to make that happen. And many other countries began to emulate those approaches quite successfully. And I don't particularly get involved in the politics of any individual member state, but sometimes I do hear that Considering the UK was an innovator in this, the sustained commitment isn't always as commensurate with uh, the effect that it had, right? It's one of those things where sometimes you get complacent about the things that you yourself have done. Oh, I mean, I think the UK has a long history of inventing things and then developing complacency and thinking we're brilliant at this and then looking around and going, oh, oops, everybody else has overtaken us. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's probably not just the UK, but it is a story I hear in the UK quite a bit. No, but it is, I th- it's a thing. But that comes down to the continued investment and the the will and the desire. And valuing what you have. Yeah. Valuing what you've created and, and honoring that. I would love to see the UK take more pride in what they've done there because it, it really has changed the world. My program... One of the first things I discovered after Dr. Tedros approved this exploratory phase in the beginning was the all-parliamentary working group on arts and health and the white paper that uh, came out of Lord Vasey's office when he was culture minister in the Cameron administration. Innovative stuff. And it really inspired me to help create this WHO work along similar lines. So it's not just... Canada, Australia, European countries, etc., taking the lead, but it's WHO itself. I give credit where credit is due. Yeah, but it is disappointing from my point of view as a UK citizen and somebody working in this field that we do all this great work. And then it's not that it doesn't go anywhere because it is still going. There's lots of brilliant work happening at policy level in academia and on the ground, but there's a disconnect between all of those different areas and there isn't enough investment in it. Yeah. And I I guess my job is WHO. WHO respects the choices that individual member states make, but we also like to hold up a mirror and say, this is the evidence of what you've done. Here's our suggestion of what you can do further to improve outcomes and to turn it into sort of a positive conversation. And to that end, there are a couple of events that we hope will do exactly that. This August, we are collaborating with the Scottish Ballet and other organizations in Scotland to create this event, this activation called Healing Arts Scotland, which will be celebrating these arts-based health practices all around Scotland. It's going to begin in the Houses of Parliament in Edinburgh. It's going to move to Glasgow and then smaller communities and cities all around Scotland and celebrating the arts ability to help you cope with the everyday stresses of life, to be able to exercise your abilities to the highest individual potential, to be able to be more productive in your life, to contribute positively to community. And really, maybe the most important part is being able to express and acknowledge moments of joy. Mm. And if we can do these things, we can... I think, make real headway into this epidemic of isolation and loneliness that has gripped the world, really. And to me, creative expression is a key solution there. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, once said, loneliness is not the absence of people. Loneliness is the inability to express what matters to you most. And to me, that's the central vision of what we're doing. It's not about reducing medical care costs. That's a piece of the puzzle. But ultimately, it's giving people the power to express what matters to them and the connection and joy that results from that. It's so true. I should also point out, in addition to the Scottish activation, which I hope everyone in Scotland uh, participates in, it's going to be during the uh, Edinburgh Festival in August. 
We also have an emerging collaboration with the Globe Theatre in London, which I hope will turn into something bigger than just that, which I'm very excited about. They actually came to me and asked me if I could create a piece on Shakespeare and mental health. And that's what started the conversation. And it's going to turn into something, I think, larger than that and more regional than that. And then uh, Ireland has been actively exploring an all-of-government approach to folding in creative expression into all aspects of government services. And part of that is the social prescribing approach that I mentioned earlier, which was based on the UK example. But the other part of it is Ireland realizing that their own culture is so based on the word and the song and the dance that they feel that what they have learned as a people, both in terms of healing from past trauma and conflicts, but also celebrating what it means to be alive, to be part of this particular community, are lessons that the rest of the world might be able to learn from. So they're actually looking to be global leaders in this, which I think is very exciting. It's so exciting. And it's just so good that they are recognizing the value of their own assets yeah. Not in terms of buildings and, and spaces, although obviously those are part of it. But in, in a way, it just goes back to this idea that actually arts and health has always existed. In Ireland, you know, you talk about the oral tradition, song and dance, and people have been practicing those things for generations together as communities. And although they didn't really think about it in terms of health, necessarily in the past no actually it was always doing that wasn't it it was always healing and being a kind of therapy and communion for people sure well look at the word nature the modern context of the word as being this positive signifier for our relationship to the environment and the natural world around us wasn't really used that way until the 19th century when it was in danger Prior to that, it was just assumed you were part of nature. You didn't have to put a name to it. Similarly, for instance, Native Americans, I've been very much involved in some of uh, their work as well. Oftentimes, some of the languages don't even have a word for art because it's something you practice as being a living human being. It's just ingrained, isn't it? Yeah. If you ask a fish, you know, what is their word for water? They're going to say, what's water? I mean, they just live in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so true. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, the sort of policy side of the WHO's work and the influence that it can have on policy in individual countries. And I know that maybe the way you influence policy in different countries varies, but what are the ways that you have seen being successful in terms of your role as an advocate in influencing policy change in countries to be more inclusive of the arts in health policy? Well, I think there are several different approaches to influencing policy, some hard, some soft. On the hard side, we supported a program called Music and Motherhood, which began as a small RCT in the UK of mothers who were experiencing postpartum depression using singing groups 
to help manage that condition. And it was so successful. We did national pilots in Romania, Italy, Denmark. We involved the European Union in that. We had a convening last fall in Copenhagen to release the results. And now there's conversation happening at the European policy level about how this might be incorporated into guidelines. And that's huge. That's like the traditional route of practice, research, evidence, and policy to scale something that's an effective practice. And similarly, we're having some conversations at WHO to have some of this work be folded into our WHO global guidelines on the subject, which takes it one dimension even further. So that's the hard side. On the soft side, in a few weeks, I'm going to be in Ireland for Creative Brain Week, which is held out of Trinity College for the last three years. The first year was during the pandemic, so I participated virtually. Last year, I was there in person. And this year, we're trying something a little bit different, where the government of Ireland has asked me to visit different places around the island to celebrate local heroes. And I don't know what I'm going to see, but I do know from my experience that part of my role as an arts and health, global health ambassador, isn't just to push a message or to tell people the best evidence-based way of doing something. It's simply to listen, to acknowledge, to be there. And when I go to these hospitals, when I go to these communities, I do more listening than talking, to be honest. And that can have a a tremendously powerful effect. Somebody heard. Someone from WHO came and listened and appreciated. And that is what I call the soft approach, where the ramifications can be huge sometimes. And I've done that all around the world, in Africa, in Asia, in, in the Americas. And even without recommending anything, even without delivering a product or a tool, it can supercharge the environment, again, because people suddenly feel the connection to others in the world. It's not me. It's not WHO as an entity. It's what we represent And what we represent is the collective compassion and will of the people to live better lives. Mm. And what's next for arts and health through the WHO? What's immediately on the horizon is at this year's World Health Assembly, we're going to have a member state briefing on arts and health, which sounds very technical, but actually it's kind of a big deal because there are only five of them per year, and usually they're on the big issues of the time. So the fact that we're actually going to do that, and it's not something I lobbied for, it was something that they requested me to do, shows a momentum here, an interest in the conversation. What that turns into ultimately is up to the member states because WHO, we're a technical agency, but we follow the requests and needs of the member states. We don't impose them on them. So if there is a positive reaction to that, conceivably, that could result in a global conversation that, among other things, could lead to 
a resolution at the World Health Assembly. Who knows? It's premature to say. It's really up to the member states, but it could be very exciting. Yeah, great that the conversation is going to happen on that global platform. Really great. So finally, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your own creative practices and how they help your health and well-being. You mentioned cooking, so tell us a bit more about that or any other things that you get involved with yourself. Well, I could do six other podcasts just on that (laughs) subject. (laughs) But one of the things that I like about cooking is that it involves all the senses. It is by definition communal. You're literally breaking bread together, communing around the table. And that oxytocin effect that happens with beautiful food and the sharing of it creates community. It creates a sense of family, even amongst people who are not blood relatives. And we've actually put that into practice. There are programs around the world that use the making of a meal together as a way of bridging differences. There's a wonderful example of it in Atlanta of white and black families who politically may be very diametrically opposed making a meal together. And they can talk about whatever they want. It's not didactic. It's just the experience of breaking bread. When I was in LA. We've had coming up in June will be our third edition of LA Arts and Health Week, which I've been helping organize with the LA Opera and Renee Fleming. In the first year, we had an activation in Koreatown, where coming out of the pandemic, it was observed by outreach workers that the mental health issues were most acute in the older population and the teenage population, that their sense of the future had grown diminished. There was a despair about the future and a sense of isolation. And when they brought in mental health professionals, particularly with the older population, it didn't seem to be that culturally relevant or effective for them. And they resisted it. So then the question was put to the older generation, quite simply, what's important to you that isn't happening? And many of them said that younger Koreans in their community were not learning the food ways of their people. So what they did was they created a kimchi festival where literally they brought teenagers from around the neighborhood and elders came together and they made kimchi. And when you watched that, as I did, and saw these old hands in this bowl of cabbage and fermented spices, holding the soft hands of a teenager and showing them how to put the spices in between the leaves. And as their fingers touched, the stories would begin to come out of the world in in Korea and people that they knew and recipes that had been told And the joy that came out, the sense of community and the delicious kimchi that was the result, it was uh, quite extraordinary. So yeah, for me, cooking is part of it. I think I mentioned earlier that I was a trained actor. And I think part of what I try to do, like I say, when I'm asked to speak, I don't give presentations and I don't give speeches. I deliberately call them performances because... I do try to embody the techniques, not just the information of the field. People have asked me, do I miss acting? Well, no, I'm doing it all the time, frankly. Yeah. 
And I also think acting as a whole, you know, I was trained in something called the miser technique, which at its heart is about pursuing your objectives moment to moment in an authentic way, even in a fictional setting. And that's not a bad way to go through life, honestly. Yeah. Focusing on relationships, focusing on listening, focusing on truthful reaction, pursuing your objectives, having different tactics in your back pocket. These are all the things that an actor is trained to do. I remember my first day of acting class, the teacher asked the class, what does it mean to act? And one person would say, acting is feeling the part. It's imitating life. Another person would say, it's interpreting the intentions of the author faithfully and in an interesting way. And the teacher smiled and said, all of those are really interesting answers, but they're all wrong. (laughs) And then she took out her dictionary and said, to act, verb transitive, to do, to make happen. Oh, what? That's all it is. And if feeling something, interpreting something, imitating something gets you there, then fine. But at the end of the day, something's got to happen. Yeah, but then I think all of those people's interpretations are true and real. Of course they are, yeah. But it's also fun to get to the essence of something, to make it practical. Yeah. So listening to you talk and hearing your story and what you said at the beginning about how your shyness found a place in acting and then that has ultimately led you to what you're doing now. And it seems to me that you're meant to be here doing this. Well, it also saved me in some ways later in life because your podcast audience isn't going to be able to know this, but I'm blind. And when I lost my sight, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it was a traumatic event. You know, in our present day society, 80% of the way that we engage the world is visual. And so when you lose that, it's a kind of a death. Mm. And our conception of beauty is often visual. When I was diagnosed and that Christmas, I said goodbye to my son, thinking that I literally am never going to see him again, even if we're physically present in the same place. That was heartbreaking to me. And I was filled simultaneously with these two twin storms of my past becoming this endless ocean of grief and sorrow for what I had lost and my future becoming this rolling storm of anxiety and dread for what I was going to have to face and felt totally unprepared for entering this world of darkness. And honestly, I would have to say it was engaging in the deep aesthetic experience that allowed me to find a path. Uh, And it actually happened in the UK. I was um, going to give a talk in London. As I often do, I will walk before something just to ease the nervous tension and to get into a kind of a flow state. And I decided I wanted to, um, prior to this uh, performance presentation, see one of the midday concerts at St. Martin in the Fields off Trafalgar Square. And this was before the pandemic. And so it was totally crowded. And as I was walking through this 
see of humanity, I started getting pushed from side to side. And because I can't see, I began to panic and my heart started to race, began to sweat. And pretty soon I was buffeted about and tossed outside and at the edge of the crowd on the wrong side of Trafalgar Square. And as I figured out where I was, I found myself in front of the National Gallery and my heart sank because I'd been avoiding museums for years because I had spent so much time there pleasurably. I didn't dare go back in my current condition of not being able to see these objects that had given me such pleasure. But to escape the crowd, I went in and found myself in this gallery of these huge monumental paintings. And I stared at them through my foggy vision to try and figure out what the paintings were and and where I was. And I saw these dark, tumultuous seascapes and storms and ships in an ocean and fog rolling in. And I realized that I was in the Turner Gallery. And as I'm figuring out what I'm looking at, I start tasting salt on my cheeks. And I thought, is that the salt spray from these ocean scenes? No, it was the tears running down my cheek because for the first time, looking at this long dead artist's vision of the world exemplified in these artifacts of his paintings and triangulating that to my own current experience, I saw that the way Turner saw the world was identical to mine with terminal glaucoma. And for the first time, I could actually conceive of the way I see the world as beautiful. That's amazing. And that was the first step in me accepting my condition. Mm. And now I think I can honestly say, uh, just as you might willingly close your eyes to better savor a glass of red wine, just as you might willingly close your eyes to better embody a beautiful piece of music, so too do I now accept the closing of my eyes to better share this moment with you. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that, Christopher. I really appreciate that. You know, you are a living embodiment of somebody who embraces the arts and creativity for your own healing benefits. And thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and your passions and your wisdom and your dedication to arts and health on a global level. I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, yeah, sometimes it is all about meaning. And when one faces a challenge or moments of adversity, finding that meaning, creating that meaning is the task. Hope is a creative act. And if part of that meaning can be transfiguring that experience, not only to change you into something that is different, that will never go back to what you were, but is okay. And being able to use that experience to help people follow their own unique paths, facing their own unique challenges, and finding those moments of transformation for them, then that even adds to the meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And that is what you're doing. I hope so. On a good day. Thank you, Christopher. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. 
follow the show on Instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund. Music